Welcome to Ask Peggy About Your Finances, because prosperity is so much more than money. Brought to you by writer, speaker, and certified financial planner, Peggy Doviak. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Hello and welcome to the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak and I am a certified financial planner practitioner. This is a show for you to help you understand your money. We look at the stock market and things that make it go up and down. We look at financial legislation that could impact your bottom line. In the Plan Your Prosperity segment, we take a deeper dive into a financial planning topic to help you understand it. And then finally, in the last section, you have the opportunity to ask me a question. So if you'd like to submit a question for the show, go to askpeggy.com, that's A-S-K-P-E-G-G-Y.com, and submit your question. Then I'll be in contact with you, get some additional information, and then we'll craft an answer that can be educational for the listeners. So let's get started with the Bulls and Bears Market and Economic Update. And this is for the week ending 11-1-2019. And I thought that rather than looking at weekly data this time, since it was the 1st of November, it might be nice to look at the monthly data instead. It's very easy to get lost in the noise of the stock market. When you try to keep up with it day to day, it goes up, it goes down. Even sometimes week to week, you can lose the bigger picture. So for the month of October, the Dow went up 2.91%. The S&P 500 went up about 1.5%. The NASDAQ did better. It went up 5%. Gold went up 0.64%. Crude oil went up 6.07%. And the 10-year Treasury yield has a current rate of 1.716%, and for the month it went up 3.28%. And probably the biggest news of the week was the action of the Federal Reserve. They did lower rates again by another quarter point, and that gain in the 10-year yield happened actually prior to the cut of last week. They, they cut it again the middle of last week. However, it kind of shows that things seem to be stabilizing within the Treasury yield. Will they continue to lower rates? Well, if you listen to the radio show or you listen to it as a podcast or maybe you read what I write, you'll know that I haven't been really impressed that they've been lowering the rates. The economy is basically very sound. Everything has been fine. And we've had three rate cuts in a condition where really it doesn't look that bad. Now, there are a few things. And of course, the Fed always issues a statement talking about what their concerns are. One of the things that did not happen, according to this last Fed report, they were concerned that um, inflation would go up, given the rest of the economic expansion. That actually hasn't happened. Inflation is still running less than 2%. 
Now, to put that in context, the long-term rate for inflation is 3%. The Fed sets a target of 2 because the Fed has to act far in advance of events in order to have everything trickle through and actually make an impact. So what happens with the Fed is they're generally early or they're late, and I think that one of the actions on lowering it now, they want to be sure that everything continues to be strong. With inflation at less than two, that's half of their mandate. Employment is great. The employment numbers consider, continue to be really strong. And so that's the other part of their mandate. But they do look at other economic data as well. Gross domestic product numbers, or GDP, which is what you've probably heard it at, is at 1.9%. And it's dropped a little bit this year. Business investments dropped by 3%. And factories and office spending has dropped by 15%. So the GDP isn't terribly strong, and that's given the Fed a little bit of latitude so they can move and have a justification for doing it. There is, however, stronger indication in their language that they're going to have to see very negative signs before they lower rates again. Now, they did offer language that sounded sort of like that the last time they cut rates, but this time the language was stronger. So will they cut rates again in the foreseeable future? I don't know. I, I absolutely don't know. I have managed to call the Fed wrong three times in a row now. So since I have officially struck out on my ability to um, set Fed policy, I'm not going to guess. What I will say is I cannot imagine a scenario where they would start raising rates any time in the near future. So I feel like this is a kind of sustained period where rates are low. What does that mean to you as an investor? One of the things you'll want to be careful of, you need to talk to your certified financial planner practitioner because I will never give you investment advice on this show. But look at the yield of anything you're considering purchasing and make sure that that yield is at a point that you're happy to receive it for the period of time of the investment. So for instance, if you were looking at purchasing a municipal bond and it's five years, the current rate is going to be pretty low and you will be locked into that rate for the period of the bond, in this case, five years. There's nothing wrong with making the decision that you want to do that. But I always think it's important before you make a decision on whether or not to purchase a real bond that you're going to hold until it matures to be aware of where interest rates are and where you're locking yourself in in an economic cycle. Because it will be a while before rates go up but you will be locked in at a very low rate. It's just something to think about, and then you can do what makes sense for your portfolio. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the legislative update of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. Today, I have two news stories to talk to you about. The first is 
the Government Accountability Office, so that is the GAO, has found that the Federal Reserve, when they were issuing guidance, actually crossed the line and were creating law. Now, the Federal Reserve doesn't actually set law. That's the job of Congress. By the GAO finding that the Fed crossed the line, that allows Congress to step in and make adjustments or overrule what the Federal Reserve is doing. Now, this is happening in conjunction with some tighter regulations that the Fed is wanting as a result of the 2008 economic disaster. You remember that, and I'm amazed that it's 11 years since that happened. But they, the GAO did not want the Fed to be able to set some of these stricter policies without congressional oversight. What does that mean in real life? Well, right now it actually doesn't mean anything at all because it would likely be the Republican-controlled Senate that would be trying to roll back some of the rules, but the democratically-controlled House won't go along with it. And since both houses of Congress have to agree, they both have to vote on it, and it has to pass both of them, then when you have one house controlled by the Senate, or one body controlled by the Senate, one body controlled by the um, House, and you have the Republicans in one and the Democrats in the other, likely this means nothing at all. It is, however, showing the importance of voting. It's very important that you understand that when you're voting, these things have very far-reaching consequences. So for the people who are favoring the deregulation, they're happy with what the Senate is doing. For the people that are trying to put more regulation in place, they're happy with what the House is doing. Personally, I think we should be very careful about rolling back rules that are designed to keep 2008 from happening again. Because the 2008 crisis was primarily a financial institution crisis that bled over and crashed the stock market. The stock crash of 2008 was more a result of what was going on rather than being the cause of what was going on. And it's really easy to miss that when your portfolio is dropping by 1% or 2% a day. You always want to look at the underlying causes. I think it's very important that we keep rules in place to try to have some accountability so that if we are going to say that financial institutions are too big to fail, that we have some regulations in place to make sure that nothing goes terribly off the rails. But in any case, for now, the GAO guidance won't have a lot of effect, but I do think it's important to be aware of. The second story of the week um, concerns Labor Secretary Eugene Scalia, who is the son, by the way, of Antonin Scalia, if you're a trivia person. And he was in the law firm that was opposed to the Obama-era fiduciary rule that was put out by the Department of Labor. And so he helped break that fiduciary rule. That's why the old DOL rule really just doesn't exist at all anymore. It finally went down in flames for the last time earlier this year. 
He is now in charge of creating a new fiduciary rule overseeing the group that will do it. It looks like they may be taking as their model the SEC's regulation best interest rule. We'll have to wait and see what happened. If you listen to the show, you know that the fiduciary standard is something near and dear to my heart. In plain English, it means that your financial professional should always act in a way that benefits you first rather than them. So it's very important that there not be contests where they are encouraged to sell a certain mutual fund, or there should be a very bright line of the consumer comes first. And the fiduciary rule in its current form back from the Investment Advisors Act of 1940 is a legal standard. The regulation best interest that has come out is more of a guidance. I really hope the fiduciary rule per se keeps the teeth that it's always had, even though the last effort to make it apply to everyone went away. Remember that prior to the DOL fiduciary rule that's been scuttled, investment advisors have to act as fiduciaries, but stockbrokers do not. And the fiduciary rule passed by Department of Labor extended that standard of client care to the brokers. That's now gone. So now the investment advisors still have the fiduciary rule, but the brokers do not. And so what the, what the Department of Labor is setting right now will impact a huge number of financial advisors and their behavior and how they're acting to you. What does this mean to you? It means that when you're working with anyone, you ask them lots of questions. You ask them how, you're, how they're compensated. You can ask them how much they're compensated if you want to do it. I mean, you would know that on any other transaction that you had. It's very important to know who's benefiting from the financial advice you're getting. And even though everyone gets paid, the person who's benefiting by far the most should always be you. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 and Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak, and today in the Plan Your Prosperity segment, we're going to talk about expecting realistic investment returns. You know, investing is a lot like people who go to the casino. When someone tells you, oh, wow, I bought a stock and it went up 300%, you know, maybe it did, maybe it didn't, but they also didn't tell you about all the other wild speculation that costs them money. You know, when people leave the casino, they only talk about their winners. When people who actively trade stocks, and you know people like this, they're, they're not most of your friends. Most of your friends have 401k plans and IRAs, and it's all very basic. But we hear about, wow, we made a thousand percent in 10 years, or you'll hear an ad on television. There's one ad running right now. It's making me a little crazy because it makes it sound as though anyone, if they just know the secret sauce, can get unbelievably high returns year after year after year. 
I think it's really important to sit back and take a deep breath and look at realistic returns and not be expecting too much. I say this because I've seen people in their desire to match that return they heard about on television or their friend who trades stocks for a living make some very dangerous decisions. The biggest issue that can occur is it makes you more inclined to fall for a scam or a scheme. I'm not going to say that the person who tells you that they're consistently beating the market by 10, 15% every year, I'm not going to tell you they're lying because, you know, they may be that rare person who can actually do that. However, one of the number one signs of recognizing a Ponzi scheme are very consistent, much higher than average returns. The reason the person running the Ponzi scheme pays this kind of return is they have to have you keep your money invested. Remember, the Ponzi scheme works because the money is given to the person and then mostly spent by that person. But then new money comes in and that new money is used to pay off the people who want a distribution from the cash that the scammer has already used. So the only way Ponzi schemes continue is by being such a fabulous investment opportunity that people stay in. They're much higher than normal market returns. So what is a normal market return? If you take the long-term average of the S&P 500 from 1929, so this is a very long-term average until today, the average is 11%. If you take the long-term average in the bond market, the average return is 5%. Now, most of us don't have risk tolerance levels that let us be in all stocks all the time. In fact, 50-50 portfolios are common for a lot of people, and it's easy to show you the math when we don't have a calculator. So if you have a, an investment, a, a portfolio, and half of it is in the stock market, making long-term average of 11 and half of it is in the bond market, long-term average making five, you're earning on average 8% a year. 11 plus five is 16 divided by two is eight. So that's a realistic portfolio expectation. Now, if you happen to hit a great run in the market, you might do better than that. If you go in at the wrong time right before a major market downturn, you might do less than that. You know, there's no guarantee you're going to make 8%. It just has everything to do with what you're invested in and everything to do with what the market did. But when someone says, oh, you'll make 20%, that's a really scary thing for them to be telling you. And so I want you to be very careful with that. People like to swing for the fences when in fact, if you'll just try to consistently hit singles and doubles, your portfolio will do a lot better overall on average. The other problem with trading all the time, trying to make that big money, is the trading cost. 
The trading cost is what you pay per trade. And I know that some of the new online brokerage firms are announcing, oh, it's zero commission for a certain kind of trade. You need to read the fine print. And the truth is there's going to be other factors at work. Trading is rarely flat out free. And so the more you churn the portfolio, the more fees you're paying. If you're working with an advisor who charges commission, they might be earning a commission every time you trade as well, depending upon a lot of circumstances. But there's always that risk. The term churning is used mostly to describe financial advisors who buy and sell simply to create the commission off of that to increase their profits. But even if you're working with an investment advisor or someone who isn't charging commission, trading has a lot of issues. It also has tax consequences if you have an after-tax account. Now, if you have an IRA or a 401k, you can trade inside of that, and there's no tax consequences until you take a distribution out of the account. But if you have just a normal joint account or individual account, you'll be triggering capital gains and losses every single time you place a trade. It can create a tax nightmare. It can also create a tax liability. So you need to be very careful that you understand the consequences of what you're doing. In addition, you can trigger something that the IRS deems a wash sale. And that's when you sell something at a loss and within 30 days of either side of it, you've purchased it. The IRS makes you take the lower basis. I know this is radio and that's enough to make your head explode. Talk to your CPA before you consider doing a lot of trading in an after-tax account. Tell them you heard about something called a wash sale on the radio and let your CPA work in all the details of it because it is a tax thing. You want to be aware of it. You don't want to make a mistake. So you can make usually a return on an investment portfolio. That's the whole reason why we have 401ks and IRAs. Over time, on average, they make money. But you need to not set your expectations so high that you set yourself up for failure or being taken advantage of or creating other monsters you didn't know you had. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 and Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy segment of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. Today's question is something I hear from people all the time. And it's various iterations of the question. And so today I want to focus on what happens when a young person asks me what they're told and how the advice changes as you age. So today's question comes from someone in their 20s. Peggy, if I'm in my 20s, is it okay for me just to use a rule of thumb for my retirement savings because I'm so young? If you pay a lot of attention to financial 
articles, books. Sometimes they will give you a rule of thumb about how much money you will need in retirement. And the rule of thumb I hear all the time is eighty percent. I've read many books that said, okay, so on average you're going to need about eighty percent of your spending that you have now when you're in retirement. So if you're in your twenties. To a certain extent, it's fine to make an assumption. I mean, I understand you're 50 years from retirement. You have no idea what your retirement's going to look like, and honestly, I'm just proud of you for saving for your retirement at all. So, what I would encourage you in your 20s, rather than going to a lot of trouble and doing a lot of math, is just save as much as you possibly can. You need to put money. In a four hundred one k at work, if they offer a match, at least up to the level of the match, because that's your employer giving you free money. So if they match up a three percent contribution, try to try to donate three percent, because then you've got six percent going into your account, and then regardless of the market return, you've gotten an instant. 100% return on your money because you got three free percent after you put in three. So participate, create a plan. It is important to look at your cash flow. It is important to make sure that you're not spending all of your money on things that are going to be gone by a week from today. So that you put some money in. If you don't have a 401k plan, you might consider opening an individual retirement account, an IRA, or a Roth IRA, where you pay your taxes on it first, and then the money grows income tax-free. So yes, when you're in your 20s, you can use a rule of thumb if you want. The problem with people in their 20s. Is your lifestyle in your twenties is probably going to improve a lot over time, you know, especially if you're just barely out of school, just barely starting a job. Your salary in your twenties is not your best. So saying, "Oh well, you'll need eighty percent of that in retirement," that's probably not true. You probably are going to need eighty percent of whatever you're earning as you get a little bit further into your career. So I'm a little afraid of that kind of an estimate, even then. But if you want to use it as a rule of thumb, go right ahead. But here's the problem: as you get older, this rule of thumb of eighty percent in some literature does not suggest you ever need to get away from it. But your expenses in retirement might be eighty percent of what they are now. They might be exactly what they are now, and they might be higher than they are today, and several things can lead to that happening. So let's assume you've bought your house when you're 35. You do a 30-year conventional mortgage. You never refinance. Your house is paid off. So if that's where you are at 65, then your costs will go down by at least the amount of the mortgage payment and the interest. You'll still have your taxes and your insurance, but the bill will be a little bit less. What I see happen though is somewhere along the line, people refinance and they refinance to another 30-year note. Now you have mortgage payments well into retirement. 
or they decide it would be really great to get a lake house. And so they buy another house with another mortgage. So you can't necessarily assume that you're not going to have a mortgage in retirement. And that's the biggest place where these people who say you need 80% are getting some of that money from because your driving expenses aren't 20% of what you spend. Your clothing isn't 20% of what you spend in practically all cases. You need to be very careful that you don't assume it. The sadder problem are medical expenses. And the cost of both your medicine, your traditional costs, as well as then long-term care can be bankrupting to people. So be very careful. Look at what you spend. Look at the cash flow. Think about what you want your retirement to look like and then make an honest assessment of your medical expenses before you decide it's safe to just use a rule of thumb. Remember, you can submit a question to askpeggy.com. I will see you next week. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. You may submit personal finance questions to the Ask Peggy Facebook page and learn more at PeggyDoviak.com. And remember, prosperity is so much more than money.